walk through the book of Philippians, this letter from the early church planner, the Apostle Paul. And what we've been looking at, what we've realized is that Philippians is having some trouble with unity, some trouble with humility, that there's strife, there's tension within the church. And so Paul writes to them, he writes to them joyfully and gladly. These are his friends, but but the news he's heard is not necessarily good news. And so he wants to be sure that they are living the gospel. That's actually what... We, we've titled this series, I've titled this series as Living the Gospel. And I wonder, what is it when I say the phrase or ask the question, you know, what does living for Jesus look like to you? And it may be that um, even that phrase, living for Jesus, carries with it some negative connotations, uh, almost sounds fanatical or hypocritical. Maybe you've heard that used, maybe, that, that, maybe that's been used as a club on you before. Or maybe your thought is on the other end of the spectrum and you're thinking, gosh, if just more people would live for Jesus, the world would be a much, much better place. But what does it actually look like? How would you define it? And I bet there would be almost as many definitions as there are people in this room. And I also would get would wager that when that definition comes to mind, it probably involves a list of things that Christians should do and maybe a list of things that Christians shouldn't do. And those are there in the Bible. Those are most certainly there. But what I'm going to try to press home to you today is that it's actually more than that. And it's more than that because that's what Paul shows us in this letter. That it's not really, it's interesting in this particular letter that Paul doesn't press home a list of behaviors as much as he does a certain attitude, a certain mindset. And so living the gospel, though it certainly involves some things you would do and some things you shouldn't do, it involves more than that actually believing that good news and having a certain mindset. Um, yesterday morning, so I'm, I'm coaching soccer for my oldest son's team, and yesterday morning we had a soccer coach's training. And so I show up, and they hand us a sheet, and on this sheet is a list of three or four different drills you can do with your team during soccer practice, and it's, it's all laid out on, on the sheet in a table form right on the left side, and this left-hand column is the description of how the drill is supposed to go, and then on the right-hand side is a picture and while I understand the English that is being used in the left-hand side, and I, and I, for the most part, understand what is going on in the picture, I see people and soccer balls and cones, I don't actually, that, none of it actually made sense to me. Like, I read it over and over again. Like, I would read it, and I would look at the picture, and I would read it again, and I would go back to the picture. And I was fairly clueless as to what exactly I was supposed to do with this sheet of paper. Some of you may have experienced this. We used to joke about uh, setting the clock on your VCR. That's only funny to, like, you know, people who are 40 and over, um, right, because now your clock sets itself. So, but, you know, you've probably had this experience when you've read instructions, particularly for something really technical, that unless you're an engineer and we have 
one of those, I think, a couple, um, that you, when you read technical instructions, you're just like, wait, what? What do you want me to do with that? Like tab A needs to be inverted at a 90-degree angle to slot B, and then I installed this and this. And it doesn't make sense to you until somebody does it. Until somebody actually just says, no, here's what you do. Oh, you just put this over there. Okay, got it. Right, same thing happened yesterday at soccer coaches training. I was clueless as to what, and the hard part was that the instructor for the training handed us the sheets and said, okay, group B, I was in group B, you're responsible for this one. Great. Uh, We've got like a handful of kids who were there and we're supposed to tell them how to run through this drill when we have no clue what we're doing ourselves. And so then the instructor steps in and says, okay, here's how it's supposed to go. And he shows us how to do it. He shows us how to run it, right? Most of us need to see it, right? We can't just read it, though that's good. Paul's not as confusing as stereo instructions or as soccer training instructions. Paul's not confusing in what he says, but he goes on from telling us what to do, how to live, to give us actually concrete examples. He helps us to see it. And so that's what we have before us in Philippians 2, verses 19 through 30. You have the words on the screen, or if you have your Bible, you can read them in there. Here's what Paul says. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing on his word. Father, as we consider this passage, as we look at your word, Lord, I pray that you would, that you would help us, that you would help us to understand why Paul writes this, what benefit it is uh, to us. But ultimately, Lord, I pray that we would see Jesus, that we would know and understand the grace, your grace to us in him, and that we would be transformed by it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to some of the things that Paul has already said in this letter. He said things like, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Consider others more important than yourselves. And then later on, he goes on to say in in chapter 2, verse 13, do all things without grumbling or disputing, without arguing. That you may be blameless and innocent. Shining as lights in the world. I think we read those things. And I don't know about you, but I read those things and I look at the church and I go, I'm not necessarily just saying this about our church, but I look at the church in general where people from outside the church look at a church and they go, really? Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, no grumbling, no arguing. Is that true of us? And I, I go back to my previous question, what does it look like when you hear Paul say, Shine as lights in the world in the midst of a crooked and, genera- crooked and twisted generation. What does it look like in your mind to be a shining light? Is it a certain list of habits that you do and a certain list of things that you avoid? And is that all that there is to it? I would point you to what Paul says. He says, How all-encompassing, right? Usually I tend to think what what I want to do when I make that list in my head, what it means to be a shining light, is I usually exalt the behaviors that I'm pretty good at. Okay, I'm not a murderer. Chick. Right? Like, we, we usually make it really easy... And we avoid the big list at the bottom, right? All the things, we, we like the tip of the iceberg. It's all the stuff underneath that we have a problem with. Um, and so, for instance, Paul does say that those who practice sexual immorality will not be in the kingdom of heaven. Right? That's, that is said clearly in the New Testament. That's not an Old Testament thing. That's a New Testament thing. Jesus was clear about that. Okay? But you know who else won't be there? Liars, gossips, envious, bitter people. Now, that won't be in heaven. Did that make your list of things that you avoid doing? And so my point is this, that, that when we think about what it means to live a godly life or to live as shining lights, we typically just minimize it to that small list of behaviors that we're doing pretty good at and we avoid the really... The, the other things, right? And then we demonize the things we don't, we don't do at all. And I want to show you that, that Paul's list is much more encompassing than that. Far, far more than downplaying obedience, Paul says, no, no, no. It goes to the root of your very motivations. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do everything without grumbling or complaining. Paul doesn't make the list small. He actually makes it big and he goes deep. He takes it to the issue of our hearts. And here's his point. And here's the point of this passage. The work of the servant king is fleshed out in those who serve him. We'll talk about that, what we mean when we say the servant king, because we're talking about Jesus. Paul's already given us this picture of Jesus, the son of heaven, who gave up all of his rights and became a sin offering for his people, gave his life so that they could have life, and then raises them up to glory. That's the good news. And Paul says that that grace actually transforms you. It actually changes you. 
But far more than just giving us instructions, Paul gives us two very clear examples. He gives us two men to look at. He gives us a humble apprentice in Timothy, and he gives us a diligent messenger in Epaphroditus. Let's look at what he gives us here and see how it points us back to Jesus. First, let's talk about Timothy. Paul says, I hope to send Timothy to you soon. Just a reminder, Paul is in prison in Rome. And there are some issues in the Roman church as well. Paul doesn't have many reliable gospel workers there with him. And so as he looks around, he hears about these issues going on in Philippi, and he says, okay, who am I going to send? Who can I trust? And as he looks around, he realizes he's got to send his favorite. He's got to send Timothy. Timothy, who had been with him a long time. Timothy, who he had raised as a son in the faith. Timothy, who was really his apprentice, one of the best, one of the closest. What does Paul say about Timothy? Why would he send him, or at least send him as soon as he can? He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So the first thing that we can learn about the life of Jesus as it's fleshed out in a person is it's a concern for others. Particularly, it's a concern for Jesus' church. Paul says, I don't have anybody like Timothy. Literally, I have no one like-minded. If you could, if you could translate it, it would be like-souled. Tim, uh, Timothy and, and Paul, they're kindred spirits. And the reason that they're kindred spirits is because they have the same love for Jesus' people. And so Paul says to them, I don't have anybody else like him. I'm going to send him to you soon. I don't have anybody else like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy was there when Paul started the church in Philippi. He knows these people. He wants to see them grow in grace and mature in the faith. Why? Paul goes on. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. When Paul looks at Timothy... He doesn't see in Timothy what he sees in everybody else around him. And, I mean, Paul is being harsh. But he's also, he's being blunt here. He looks at Timothy and he sees a man who is not only concerned for the church, but he's concerned for the church because his concerns are those of Jesus. And everybody else Paul sees is concerned for themselves. What's great about Timothy is that he's not going to Philippi to get his name on the sign. He's not going to Philippi to glorify himself, to raise his own stock. He's going to Philippi to raise the stock of Jesus' name. He's going to Philippi because he cares about Jesus' concerns, not his own. And so I think one of the first questions we have to ask ourselves And you can ask this question whether you're a Christian or not. But one of the first questions that you ought to ask yourself is, what is it that you are most concerned with? What vertically are you most concerned with? What drives you? And what horizontally are you most concerned with? What do you give yourself to? What what glory are you aiming for? And I think too often... The reality is the glory I'm aiming for is my own. And sad to say, most of us 
It's so subtle we don't even see it. I want to make a name for myself. I like a good reputation. And Paul says one of the reasons that Timothy lives the gospel, one of the ways that Timothy lives the gospel is he doesn't care. He doesn't care if anybody even knows who he is. He's just there to get Jesus' work done. And not only that, he's not going to Philippi. So that's the vertical motive. But even horizontally, what do you give yourself to? Timothy's going to Philippi to give himself for the work of the gospel. He's going to go make sure that the church is healthy, that these people are doing well. He's not going to flog the sheep or extort them. He's not going seeking some gain for himself. He's going because he's genuinely concerned about them. Is that, is that what drives you in your service to the church? Is that what drives you in your service to mankind? That's a, that's a piercing question. Paul goes on, verse 22, he says, You know Timothy's proven worth. Timothy's been tested. He's been tried. He's come through the fire. You know his quality. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Note the the familiar relationship there. This is not just a, hey, Timothy works for me. He's a pretty good guy. He should get the job done, right? Paul's saying, no, I'm sending you my son. I'm sending you my son in the faith. No one is closer to me than this young man. I've, I've watched him grow up. I've helped raise him. I've brought him along in the way that he knows Jesus. We share the same mind when it comes to the gospel. He says, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel, this language of servitude, this language of service is all over Philippians. Paul began the letter by saying he was a servant. Paul pointed to Jesus, how Jesus acted like a servant. Jesus became a servant. And now Paul is saying, Timothy is my fellow servant. We are in this together. He understands what it means to take second place. This is good apprenticeship language, and it's a model that I think the church needs to reclaim, needs to recover. We've kind of moved into into a professional model where everybody does their particular job. They have their particular role to fill, and there's not necessarily a lot of things wrong with that. But where are the Pauls and the Timothys? Where are the older brothers, the fathers in the faith even, bringing up the sons? I would even turn this question to you, Christian. Who's your Timothy? Who's your Paul? Or who's your Timothyette? Who's your Paulette, ladies? Is this how you understand the life of Christianity? Is this how you understand life in the church? That we are are meant to bring one another along? That it's a... Paul later on gives this model to Titus, another one of his apprentices. He gives him a model for ministry where he tells him how the older men are to pour into the lives of the younger men and the older women are to pour into the lives of the younger women. That this is, this is the life of the church. 
Who is your Paul? Who is your Timothy? I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. And so Paul, as soon as he... Remember, Paul's situation is kind of in flux. He doesn't know whether he's going to be condemned or set free. He's, he's waiting the final verdict. And so as soon as he knows he's going to send word to the Philippians by way of Timothy... Before he's able to do that, he's going to send somebody else back to them, and that's Epaphroditus. Verse 25, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Now, just to kind of give you the backstory, the reason we have this letter is because of Epaphroditus. The Philippian church, Paul planted it, Paul started it. And we don't know how many more years it's how many years it's been since he's been back to Philippi, but they hear that Paul is in prison, and so they send Epaphroditus with a gift to Paul. They send Epaphroditus to Paul to, to meet his needs. They've, they heard, they've heard that Paul's in distress, and so they send one of their members to help take care of him, to do whatever Paul needs, needs done. And that's what Epaphroditus has done. But on the way... He got sick. We're going to, as we read, right? He got ill. And we're going to talk more about that. Look at how Paul describes Epaphroditus. He says, he calls him my brother. Now, maybe that doesn't strike you as odd, but I, I want you to know something that Paul is a Jew. He's a Jewish man. Epaphroditus is not. Epaphroditus probably grew up worshiping not the God of the Jews, but any number of deities. He was a a pagan, as that term would be classically defined. He did not worship the God of the Old Testament. He was a Gentile through and through, and he'd come to know Jesus. And so what's really shocking about that title is that a Jewish man would reach across the aisle, actually through a huge brick wall, and put his arm around a Gentile pagan and say, this is my brother. Right? This would have been, uh, this would have been equivalent in the 1960s, 1950s, 1960s, for a white man to put his arm around a black man and say, this is my brother. This would have been scandalous. It would have been unheard of, particularly in Jewish circles. But Paul thinks nothing of it. Because Paul understands that he's in Jesus, and Epaphroditus is in Jesus, and therefore they are brothers. Regardless of their ethnic heritage, regardless, regardless of their backgrounds, because of Christ, they are now part of the same family, and so Paul can call him my brother. But he goes on, he says, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, he has labored alongside of me. He's come together with me in this. He is not passive in his love, but he has been active. And in this case, in the case of the gospel, to be a worker also means to be a warrior. Because there were many enemies to the gospel, and there still are. And so Epaphroditus is called a fellow worker and fellow soldier, somebody who linked arms with Paul and said, let's go into the battle together. Can we say that of one another? 
Are we working towards the same end? Or as you look across the globe to other people who name the name of Christ, would you call them brother and sister, regardless of their skin tone? Regardless of who they used to worship? That's the example we have here. Are we working for the same goal even here locally? Is, is the gospel, is Jesus so all-consuming to us that we could say, He is my fellow worker. She is my fellow soldier. We're in the battle together. This is what it means to live the good news of Jesus. Then Paul goes on. He says, not only is he my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier, but he's your messenger. Literally, apostle. Not apostle in the strict sense that Paul is an apostle, but in the general sense of someone sent to, to carry a message and to do a task. Epaphroditus is their messenger and their minister. That word minister um, really captures the idea of, in, in Paul's day of a public servant. Someone, someone who does a certain task, usually a religious task, but sometimes a civic task. And they do it free of charge. And so if you go to Great Britain, for instance, you have a prime minister. You have a minister of defense and so on and so forth, right? That word captures a public servant, somebody who is discharging a duty, usually at their own expense. That's Epaphroditus. He has come to meet Paul's needs on behalf. Because the Philippians couldn't be there, Epaphroditus went. There's one more word I want to say about Epaphroditus. And it comes in verse 29 and 30. Paul says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. That, that phrase, he nearly died, is the same exact phrase that Paul uses of Jesus in chapter 2, where it says Jesus drew near to death. Paul is deliberately putting Epaphroditus next to Jesus. In the same way that Jesus drew near to death in his obedience to the Father, so Epaphroditus considered it just his his reasonable service to draw near to death in his obedience to Jesus. And here's the word he uses. I love this. He says, risking his life. That word risk is a gambling term. In Paul's day. Epaphroditus is a gambler. He's a gambler for the gospel. You know what a, you know what a gamble is? I'm not very good at it. But a, a gamble, to gamble is to take a calculated risk. To look, at, to look at a situation, a deck of cards, roulette wheel, whatever, and to bet your money on a certain outcome. So you're taking a risk on a certain outcome. You're taking a calculated risk. That's what Paul says Epaphroditus did. Epaphroditus almost died. He got to Rome and he was as sick as a dog and he almost died. And by God's grace, he got better. God healed him and spared Paul that sorrow. And so Paul is sending him back to Philippi and he wants the Philippians to commend him because... Epaphroditus is a good gambler. He knows what's important. He knows, he knows what, what risk is worth taking. 
That's what a good gambler is, or really what a good entrepreneur is. They understand what a, or a good investor. They leverage risk against reward, and they say, okay, this reward is worth this risk. That's what Epaphroditus did. He looked at the reward of the gospel. He looked at the grace of God and the glory of God, and he said, I can give my life for that. I can draw near to death for that. Why would I do anything less than that? That's a gospel gambler. And that's what it means to live the good news of Jesus. Paul says, Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Honor such men. Who do we honor? Who do we shower with praise? Who do we... Who do we esteem worthy? Is it men like Timothy who don't talk about themselves? Is it men like Epaphroditus who consider the needs of others more important than their own? Is it men like Timothy and Epaphroditus who are more interested in proclaiming the name of Jesus than they are in proclaiming their own name. This is a this is a very convicting passage for me. As I read these descriptions of these two men, I read that uh, that I am to honor men, honor people. Paul says, honor people who seek to honor you, not themselves. Honor people who seek to honor Christ before themselves. As I, I seek my own honor. I'm in love with my own reputation. I want to be approved of. I want to be well liked. And if I'm honest... I want that probably before I want the honor of Jesus. And I wonder if you struggle with the same struggle. That you seek your own glory more than you seek the glory of God. And so this is a convicting passage for me. Horribly convicting. And I think the only thing I can do then is fall back on the good news of the gospel. That Jesus came to rescue glory seekers like me. I mean, isn't it, isn't it amazing? I want, you to, I want you to think about this. To seek honor for yourself. Even if, even if you're not a Christian. Or even if you would not profess to be a Christian. We don't really like people like that, do we? I mean... In the, human, in, in the whole human sphere, we don't like people who seek to honor themselves over other people. We don't like the big guy who crushes the little guy, for the most part. And yet, that's what we do. And what's interesting about it is when we do that, we're actually stealing glory. We're stealing honor from the God who, who deserves it. And so God would have every right... To wipe us off the face of the map. 
but he doesn't. God doesn't actually seek to win us through force of arms. God actually wins us through humility. God wins us through the humility that we can then in turn show to other people, genuinely and gladly. That's the good news. So if you hear this sermon and you think, man, I'm a proud, arrogant, glory-seeking man, woman. I don't, I, I honor strong people. I honor, I honor people who wouldn't, who wouldn't die for the gospel. I wouldn't die for the gospel. That's not me. If you hear this sermon and you hear that and then you say, shame on me, I'll try to do better, you've really missed the point. The point is this, that Jesus steps into humanity for people like that to then make our hearts new so that we can live like him. So if you want to be this person, if you read Timothy's description and Epaphroditus' description, you say, that's the person I want to be. You can't do 22 push-ups for 22 days and become that person. You've got to go back to Jesus. You've got to set your eyes on Jesus. You've got to become more and more intimate with Jesus. And then you will live more and more like Jesus lived. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is the song that we've sung before. It's a song I have to sing for my own heart, for my own soul. And it's this, may the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea, him exalting, self-abasing. This is victory. No part of me calls that victory. But you do. So would you help us to exalt you in a base self so that we can one day, someday, cry victory. May his beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win. And may they forget the channel, seeing only him. Oh Lord, how often we want to stand on our own name. We want some credit. Would you bring us to the place where we give every credit to you? That when the movie is done and the credits are rolling at the end, and we don't see our names anywhere, that we're glad. Because the only name that matters is the name of Jesus. Help us to so, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.